You're listening to Standing in the Gap. Standing in the Gap is a weekly podcast dedicated to the exposition of scriptures. I'm your host and podcast preacher, Brandon Harrell. I'm the pastor of Bethesda Baptist Church in East Flat Rock, nestled here in the mountains of Western North Carolina, where I've served for the past 10 years. I pray the podcast will bless your life as we study God's Word together. Hello, this is Pastor Brandon, and I just wanted to give a quick word of explanation, I guess, before uh, the the podcast today. I know that we've been gone for a couple podcasts. I guess it's been three weeks since our last one, and uh, it's just been a couple busy weeks. We had uh, meetings that we were attending and uh, had, a, had our work schedule kind of uh, switched around uh, the week before last, and so we didn't get to do a podcast then. And then on last week, we were in meeting at the church and just had a lot of things going on, so I didn't get to record the podcast then. Uh, but today's uh, podcast will actually be what I'll air on the radio over the course of two weeks. And so it's going to be a little bit of a longer podcast today. Um, in which we finish out our study in the book of Jude. And the Lord willing, we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with another podcast, and uh, hopefully then we'll be starting another study. I'm still praying, trying to get direction on what to do next, what we're going to study. And if you have uh, suggestions or anything on that, be be glad to hear those. Uh, But uh, anyhow, I just wanted to kind of give a word of explanation. I'm not by any means quitting the podcast or anything like that. I know a lot of these start up in the end, but um, just has been a couple busy weeks, really even kind of under the weather today. Uh, But anyhow, uh, the Lord's helped us. So just wanted to give you that word of explanation before the podcast today. I hope that the conclusion of the book of Jude will be a blessing to you and that the Lord will be honored in it. We'll talk to you later. All right, the little epistle of Jude. We're looking at the last couple verses of this epistle. And we're thinking about the actions that cultivate faithfulness. This began in verse 20 as uh, Jude begins to lay out for us some ways that we can be faithful, that we can cultivate faithfulness in our lives in, in light of and despite the apostasy that's going on all around us. And he's established that throughout this. He said, there are certain men crept in unawares. He said, because that's so, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And so he's told us in verses 20 and 21 that one of the actions is that we are to edify the saints. We're to edify, we're build up ourselves on our most holy faith. We're to pray in the Holy Ghost. We're to do all of this collectively, keep yourselves. That's multiple, that's more than one in the love of God. And then we're to evangelize the straying. That's one of the actions that cultivate faithfulness. And uh, in that, we see those who would be prone to apostasy because they are unregenerate, brought to Christ where they will not apostatize. And then in verses 24 and 25, the exaltation of the Savior cultivates faithfulness. And of course, in this, he's just giving us a benediction. But we see some great things here in verses 24 and 25. When he says, now unto him, and then in verse 25, when he says to, he's saying that we are to ascribe these things to God. We are to recognize these things as true of the God of heaven. Now unto him. Now, first of all, as we exalt the Savior, and as that cultivates faithfulness in our lives, we are to recognize his ability. 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's an amazing thing that when he's just got done telling us about those who will depart from the faith, those who will fall away from the faith, those who will denounce the faith, he says, just know this, that the God of heaven is able to keep you from falling. If you're truly saved, he'll keep you from getting caught up in the current of the apostate age and from being carried away from the faith once delivered unto the saints. But you've got to contend. God has provided a means whereby he will keep us, and that is in our contention, that is in our faithfulness, that is in our edification, that is in our evangelization, and that is in our exaltation. All these things are means by which God will keep us from being involved and getting carried away with the apostasy. But he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So we see the ability of Christ is exalted. But then we see in verse 25, the attributes of Christ are exalted. We've seen that we exalt him for what he's done and what he's going to do, but now we exalt him for who he is. He says in verse 25, To the only wise God. We saw his wisdom. We saw that he is the only God. He is the only wise God. He is our Savior. He is that one that saves us from our sins. And we dealt with the fact that he is our Savior. We looked at his glory found there uh, in verse 25. That word is doxa. It means literally opinion. It speaks of that quality that renders one, namely God, worthy of worship. But then he mentions three other attributes, majesty, dominion, and power. All three of these words deal with God's sovereignty. Now, you remember in verse uh, 3 and 4 when he was talking about the apostates, he said, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word deny there means to abnegate, to denounce, to reject, and it also means to cease to say or to refuse to speak. So the apostate either altogether refuses to mention the sovereignty of God or he outright denies it. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who has a problem or doesn't agree with me on the sovereignty of God is an apostate, but I am saying that every apostate refuses to admit and confess the sovereignty of God if they even speak of it at all. It is a common uh, attribute of an apostate. And so he says here to us, in light of that, we are to exalt these attributes of God. We are to exalt the fact that he is a sovereign God. Now, the word majesty, it literally means greatness. Uh, it usually refers to God in his div divinity. Uh, it, uh, WordNet defines it as dominance or power through legal authority. Uh, it has the idea of one who is noble, uh, I would say that the word majesty refers to God's rank. He, as God, ought to be esteemed as sovereign because of his inherent majesty. Then the word dominion. It translates the word kratos. It is, it is referring to the realm of God's sovereignty. So majesty is his rank. Dominion is his realm. It has the idea of the area in which he has jurisdiction. Uh, he is in charge of this realm, this dominion. And, of course, his realm is all of his created uh, entities, the universe, and all that there is therein. Over that, God is sovereign. 
And the third word we began to look at uh, is the word power. I said to you that majesty refers to his rank, that dominion refers to his realm, but the word power here refers to his um, right. Uh, it refers to his uh, jurist his, his right to rule. Uh, now, to what extent does God have the right to rule within his realm? This word that's given to us here answers that question for us. Many rulers ascended to power because of their bloodline. Many have because of their uh, vote, because they've been voted in and given the authority by the people, then they have the ability to rule. But God has the ability and the authority to rule simply because he is God. He has power. There is nothing that limits God's sovereignty. Think about that as we look at this word. Now, typically, when we see the word power in Scripture, we find the underlying Greek word dunamis, which means might or force, strength. But this word is exosia. This refers primarily to authority. It is also defined as the power of choice or liberty of doing as one pleases. Now, in order to get a good sense of what this word means, I want to think about a couple of its uses in the New Testament. One of my favorite is in Mark chapter 2 and verse number 10. Mark chapter 2 and verse number 10. This is what the scripture uh, is telling us. Now, in chapter 2, of course, this is when the Lord Jesus is preaching in this house, and there's no room to get in. And four men bring their friend who's sick of the palsy unto Christ, and because they can't get into the front of the building, they take him up on the roof, they tear up the roof, and they let him down to Jesus. And the scripture says that when Jesus, quote, saw their faith, when he saw their faith, he saith unto the sick of the palsy, the Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So when it says their faith, I don't think it's referring simply and only to the faith of the four that brought him, but also to the man sick of the palsy. You don't get saved or helped or forgiven of your sins based on the faith of someone else. You get saved based on faith, uh, uh, the faith that you have shown. You get saved because of faith that God's given to you personally. And so when he says their faith, when he saw their faith, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now this caused a stir in verse 6. Certain of the scribes were there, and they were reasoning in their hearts, and they accused him in their hearts of blasphemy. And they said, Who can forgive sins but God only? Now they had a right notion here. Only God can forgive sins. But they didn't realize they were looking at God. That was God that had just said the words that he said. God manifest in the flesh. And the Lord Jesus, of course, immediately perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. And he said, why reason ye these things in your hearts? He said, whether it's easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man, listen to this, here's our word, hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So the Lord Jesus tells this man he's forgiven. 
The scribes murmur in their hearts. They accuse him of blasphemy. And in order to prove that he is God and that he has power, authority, exosia, the liberty of choice to forgive sins on earth, he says to the man, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. Great principle here. Every time you see a miracle in the word of God, it is given forth that the word of God that follows or that precedes it may be believed. God never did miracles for the sake of doing miracles. He did it that his word would be revealed. And so Christ forgives this man, and to prove that he can, he heals him of his palsy. He has power on earth. He has liberty of choice. He has the authority from God to forgive sins on earth. By the way, you're living in the only world in which you can ever be forgiven of sins. Christ has authority on earth to forgive sins. There's no forgiveness available in hell. The rich man found that out, and there's none necessary in heaven. If you die without forgiveness and leave this life, you'll go to hell where you'll spend eternity because this is the only one where God uh, has given authority for the forgiveness of sins. The next occurrence that I want to point out is in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And in that text, Paul is describing and explaining how that salvation that is by faith alone does not negate the promises of God to the nation of Israel. He mentions his heartbreak in the first three verses for the nation. He says, I would be accursed if they could be saved. And uh, then he says and, and defines that the word of God is not of none effect because of this, for he says they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In other words, he said just because a man's a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that he is a uh, that he is an heir to the promise. And he points that out by reminding them that it is in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So he says God made choice that this salvation, that the covenant he made with Abraham would not fall upon Ishmael, but rather would fall upon Isaac. And so the question would naturally have been in the Jews' mind, well, yeah, but so what? Ishmael was an illegitimate son. He was not uh, the son of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah. So big deal. So then Paul takes it another step in verse 10. And he says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, so he reminds them of Rebekah and Isaac, and she says, She conceived by one, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so Paul says, Look, it's not just Abraham and then following down through Isaac. But God made choice between the offspring of Isaac, both of which he bore through Rebekah. He and Rebekah had these two sons, and God made choice of the younger over the older. He says, God, and, and I love what he says in verse 11, take this to heart, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Some say, well, God didn't choose Esau because Esau was wicked and was going to sell his birthright. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says God chose, made a choice between Jacob and Esau before the children had been born and before they had done any wrong or any right. 
It was not based on anything they would do or could do. It was based that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. He says in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Of course, quoting the Old Testament there. And the love that he had for Jacob so exceeded the love that he had for Esau and was of such a greater variety and degree of love that it, that it caused that that he had for Esau to pale in comparison and to be viewed even as hatred. Now, let me just... Just preface that. Uh, the scripture does say that God hateth the workers of iniquity. Uh, but I don't think you can take this text to try to push something on it that's not there. But then he says in verse 14, he's anticipating a reaction. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God said that to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He gives for an example of that in verses 17 and 18, uh, Pharaoh. And then in verse 19, he says, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Here's our word. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had aforetime prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He says, God has power as a potter has power over the clay. Freedom of choice of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. He can do with the clay as he pleases because he is God. He is the potter. What can the pot? What can the clay say to the potter? Why hast thou made me thus, he says. And in verse number 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? So he endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. I want to remind you here, the word fitted there doesn't say that God fitted them for destruction. They were fitted by their own actions and their own attitudes and their own depravity for destruction. But God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured them with much long suffering. But on the other hand, he endured with much long suffering the vessels of mercy, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So he endures us. He endures the vessels of mercy, endures those who get saved with long suffering, that he might make known the riches of his glory. And he says in verse 23, which he had afore prepared unto glory. He had afore prepared. So the work of fitting for destruction is not attributed to God in this passage. But the work of preparing something to glory is. And that's really the, the, the crux of this matter. If you make it to heaven, if you go to the glory world and are translated and, and uh, transfigured and get your new body, 
and stand faultless before the presence of the holy God, you'll have to confess that he afore prepared me unto this glory. But if you wind up in hell and you reject Christ and you go to, uh, you, you, you refuse to believe the gospel and obey not the gospel and you die in your sin, then you are fitted by your own actions and your own will for destruction. And he says in verse 24, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, as we close out Jude, we must understand that in cultivating faithfulness, we have to edify the saints, evangelize the straying, and most importantly, exalt the Savior. Ascribe to him, he says, unto him be majesty, dominion, and power. How long? Both now and ever. Ascribe to him sovereignty and continue to ascribe to him sovereignty because he is God. And it'll help you to remain faithful in days of apostasy. Until next time, this has been Pastor Brandon. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. I hope it's been a blessing to you. If you'd like to contact me, you can find our church's website at www.BethesdaBaptistEastFlatRock.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at PreacherB underscore BBC. If you'd like to watch our services live streamed, you can do that on Facebook at Bethesda Baptist East Flat Rock. God bless you till we meet again.